going to look at Genesis 48 today. Um, it is going to be our text. And let's pray as you make your way there. Father, thank you for a chance to look at your word tonight. We thank you for the Bible. Um, many of us, Lord, in this room are holding to it. We know it is you speaking to us. There's, there's nothing in this world that we can trust greater than your word. There are so much lies and deceit and, and selfishness and all the things that parade in our world of news and the things that happen even in the United States here. But we have the word of God. And it's a treasure. It's a treasure to those who love the Lord. He is speaking to us through it. We hear his voice. He guides and directs us. And, and, and we, we hang on each word, Lord. I pray that even tonight as we study ancient biblical history, that it is not just a history lesson, but that we see that you are speaking, you are giving instruction to us even now, thousands of years later, through these events. And I pray our hearts will be encouraged will yet be challenged to walk with you in a pleasing way, Lord. Lord, thank you for this church. What a joy to teach to them, Lord, to be involved, involved with them, to have friends and family that love each other, and, and we have a place to serve together till you return. So I pray you continue to bless Riverbend, Lord, not for our glory, but for yours, Lord. May your name be broadcast from this place time and time again. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. As I studied this text, uh, I was burdened by the overwhelming thought that the love of Christ must drive our obedience. It's so easy to have many other things try to drive your obedience. Maybe tradition drives your obedience. Um, maybe you were raised in church. You have a big list of things, of do's and don'ts. Um, that all wears out after a while. And, and you may be able to sustain it throughout your lifetime. You may be able to say, oh, I don't do this and I don't do that. And, you know, the old saying, I don't go with girls and chew and girls or do or something like that. Um, you might be able to sustain that. But let me promise you what you won't have is you will not have joy. Legalism doesn't produce joy. It produces tension. And, and so loving God... Loving Christ and following Him is, is what God's, God's after in our life. And there are many in this world, there are many, and Jesus said it Himself, many will claim my name. But I'll say to them, I never knew them. And many today even claim Christ, but live in disobedience. And, it's, and, and yet they miss out on all what God has for us. We turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5, just before I get into our text, because uh, this this text and this obedience of Joseph through so many years of difficulty really encouraged my heart. Second Corinthians 5 is a very familiar text, but it has such a great mandate in it. Verse 14 and 15. And there's a true, true remedy for our joy and true remedy for our life found in these verses. Paul is working hard to help us keep our eyes on the eternal prize, not be lost in these earthly tents and these things that will fade away someday. And he says in verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. 
the verb there is a very strong verb. We could even translate it compels, drives. It, it pushes us forward, right? This is, this is what we have in our lives. The love of Christ controls us. And, and what happens is we conclude this. Look at what he's saying. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Now, the all there is not uh, universalism. We know that because God has told us that there are many will reject him, right? Christ himself said, well, many say, Lord, but he does not know them. So we know that the all there is all those who believe, all those that God has determined to be his children, all will come. He will not lose none of them, right? Verse 15 and so in verse 14, when he died, we died, is the essence there, John chapter, I mean Romans chapter 6. In verse 15, and he died for all, that's all that will believe, right? So that they who live might no longer live for themselves. Boy, that's the statement right there, isn't it? That's where the rubber meets the road of the gospel. Oh, I know the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? Well, Jesus died for me. Hmm, is that the gospel? You left out important things, Sin. <laughs> You left out an important thing that the son left the heaven, became a man so he could die and hang on a cross for us to wipe away our past, present, and future sins to give us an eternal home and glory never to be charged with those sins ever, ever, ever again. Is that worth living for? I think that's what Paul's trying to drive here. Who will no longer live for themselves. That's quite a statement. It's hard to preach past it, isn't it? We probably, let's be honest now, we live for ourselves a lot, don't we? That's our battle, isn't it? We're in this flesh, and we struggle with this at times. But our Lord died so we don't have to be captive to ourselves. We can be captive to Him. But for Him, that's Christ who died and rose again on our behalf. He shows us, He beat that, so He frees us from this. And so there is a joy of obedience. And one of the things I've loved about this study is watching Joseph to this last part of this study, the end, watching him do what God asked him to do in, the, in a culture that was pagan as you can imagine. And he stayed the course because he loved God. And we stay the course because we love Christ. And I trust this series has helped you in that it has encouraged me greatly so as we turn back to genesis chapter 48 we start to look at this events that are concluding in genesis here and um, 17 years now has passed about now the famine has gone by these last 17 years jacob has um, asked joseph to make sure that his body remember at the end of 47 make sure my body doesn't be buried here i want it in the promised land I may not be alive, I'm not, I'm not here anymore, but I believe God, so I will have my body buried there, so Joseph, take it back. Demonstration of great belief of Jacob at the end of his life. Even with his struggles that we've noted that he went through those 22 years of Joseph's disappearance, and all of us would have struggled through that. Now his faith is restored, and he says, don't leave my bones here. Joseph does the same later. We'll see that when we get into Exodus. And Joseph has faithfully served the Lord when most of his family has not. But God was watching. He was watching. And I love this passage because he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. He is a rewarder. And, and I, I think somewhere along the line, Christianity took a, a left turn 
and turned us into some kind of prosperity gospel, we may never see the rewards that, that we would love to see on this earth sometimes. A lot of those rewards are coming. But he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He loves us, and he is watching, and he is keeping record. And we are motivated by his son's death. I want, uh, don't miss that. Don't miss that. Let's look at a couple thoughts tonight. Number one, faith in the God of promise. Faith in the God of promise. Look at the first four verses with me. Now it came about, verse one, chapter 48, after these things, that Joseph was told, behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. And when he was, and when it was told to Jacob, behold, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel collected his strength, I love that term, and sat up in the bed. And then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz, that would have been Bethel, in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you, I will make you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession." Well, the famine's passed, and Joseph has remained in power. God has left him there in power in Egypt. There's a lot of reasons for that. He's continued to be a godly leader in a godly, godless nation. And, and God has this tiny little nation. Remember, we ended this last week with these 70 people in this massive nation, and he's got them right in the middle of them, and he's protecting them there. And Joseph is left in the, in the hierarchy of this regime to watch over them. He's created a system. God has allowed Joseph in the wisdom. He get him to create a system, rebuild this nation after this famine. And we, we talked about how he was doing that with flat tax and returning things back to the people as, as they could pay for it. But doubtlessly, the current administration realized that Joseph was bringing great blessing to him and they weren't about ready to let him go. And it seems as though Joseph probably serves within this administration probably till his death. But meanwhile, Israel is growing in Goshen. Joseph was serving the Lord in, in Egypt down uh, south of that in the city of On. That was where the current Pharaoh and his dynasty would have reigned. But Jacob's growing older. He's growing older. He's more feeble and his days are coming to an end here as you see in this text. And Joseph's told, hey, da your dad's health is failing so he gathers up his boys and says, boys, we've got to go see Grandpa. Grandpa's got a blessing for you. Joseph's goal is to have Jacob bless these sons before his death. This was very important. Joseph was looking for what they would say the primo gentur. It was, uh, it's the blessing of the firstborn. It is an ancient tradition uh, officially recognizing that the, the, the true inheritance the heir of the father is this oldest, this firstborn. In essence, it was to make the son equal with the father in all that he had. And so Joseph here has these two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. They were born to him from his Egyptian wife. That was a gift from Pharaoh. And as Joseph arrives, notice in verse 2 the joy that takes place. And you say, well, his, how is there joy? Grandparents? When you are hurting and your grandchildren walk in, how does it make you feel? I trust you have joy in that. I'm not sure who your grandchildren are, but I would hope that you had joy in that. 
Notice it says in verse 2, Israel, that's Jacob, collected his strength and sat up in bed. He's dying. He has no strength left. But his grandchildren are there. And he wants to see them. And so God strengthens him. And I'm sure there was great joy. Though his sight is weak as we'll see, he sits up and there he wants to bless these children He's in his right mind. He hasn't lost his mind here. He's thinking clear. He's probably, let me say this, he's probably thinking more clear than he has in many years. His mind knows what he's doing. God is leading him. Notice Jacob begins to speak in verse 3. But he starts to seem, he seems to start his life when God speaks to him in Luz, or what we would say Bethel area. He doesn't go back and say, well, remember when I stole the birthright from my brother and, and then I had to run away and he didn't go to that. He starts, he starts with God talking to him. Notice in verse three, he says, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz. He starts there. I thought that was fascinating as I thought about those things. It's truly where life begins for all believers when God reveals himself to you. He had heard the stories of his grandfather and his father. He had, he, had been, he had been to those campfires, church meetings in a sense, where everybody talked about God and what God was doing and who God was and the plans God had. But now God was talking to him. And so he relates to Joseph this story. And he begins to tell him what God Almighty, what an amazing term, Elohim, the Almighty God speaks and this is what he said, verse 4, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous. They almost died, didn't they? They almost ran out of food. They almost didn't make it, it seems, humanly. But they, he's clinging to a promise that God had given. I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make your company of people. I'll make you a company of people, meaning multitudes, branches of multitudes of people. And give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. And so here, Jacob's rehearsing these promises given to him. The same that were given to Abraham and Isaac. They have not changed. God isn't making a new covenant. He's not working a new deal out. He's given the same promises, and they're being passed down. And though Jacob went through some difficult years and, and probably lost sight of these covenants with God at times as, as he went through the struggle of losing Joseph and the battles that came with that in his mind and heart, he clearly understands them now. And, and, I, and I want you to think about this. This despite not living in the promised land. He had to leave this land that he's talking about. So God said, I'm going to give you this land. You're gonna, your descendants are going to be so numerous you won't be able to count them. But meanwhile, I need you to go down to Egypt and leave this land right now and obey me. That's, that's fascinating. We always want our hands on things. Oh God, you're going to do this for me? Okay, where is it? So he's believing in something he doesn't have his feet on right now. I think there's good application there, isn't it? Do you believe Jesus is coming back? Do you believe he's played a, prepared a place for you? Have you seen that place? <laughs> so you believe by faith that he is who he is and did what he did and is doing what he is doing. I've gone to prepare a place for you. And when I come, I will take you to be with me. And lo, where I am, you will be, all, you will be there always. And so you, you see this, this faith that is coming out of Jacob at the end of his life. He believes in this promise that God has given. Look at verse 5 through 7. 
Now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to Egypt are mine. <laughs> it was Jacob speaking to his son Joseph. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. Notice the equality of the statement here. Verse 6, but your offspring that you that have been born after them shall be yours, and they shall be called by the names of your brothers in their inheritance. Now as for me, when I came to Padanaram, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan and on the journey. And when there was still some distance between Ephrath, I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. Now, Notice in the middle of this foreign land, Jacob can only think and talk about the promises of God. His, his goal is to truly clarify the future tribes of Israel right here. That's his goal. He knows that God has promised this, this covenant to him, this peoples of many, uh, of, of countless numbers, and, and this land that's given to him. So he's clarifying these, these tribes, possibly... In gratitude for Joseph's life and the salvation, really human salvation, he provided for Jacob and his family. He formally adopts Joseph's children in this verse. Notice that his sons are part of him now. He's making them equal. Notice he says that in verse 5, they're equal to me. They are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon. He takes his first two older and he equates the two oldest of Joseph's with them. He's completing the tribes. He's proving this by equating the sons of Joseph to his own sons. This would ensure that Rachel would have three Three inheritance, three territories of promised land. So there would, be, there would certainly be Joseph and Benjamin and the half-tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. Now the point here is simple, and I want to get this across here. Jacob had faith in the God of promise. Nothing really in sight of what he's looking at looks like this can really happen. There's 70 of them, maybe a few more now over these 17 years of being in the land of Egypt. Certainly there's more grandchildren and great-grandchildren um, coming along, and so the, the people are growing, but maybe they're 100, maybe they're 120, I don't know. They're, they're, but they're certainly not, you can still count them, they're not like the sands of the sea. There's great faith here on his part to believe that God is gonna do something we can't see. Look with me at Acts chapter 7. I want to show you something just quickly. Acts chapter 7. This is the sermon. Um, it's really kind of a death sermon. I tell our seminary students someday, look, when you're done preaching, they may stone you. <laughs> That's what happens to Stephen in this passage. He, he gets done preaching the sermon of his life and they stoned him. He, he thought this pulpit was difficult. Um, this was a difficult one. But I want to just show you just the first few verses here because here we are now thousands of years later. Christ has died and risen. The church has been birthed. And there's great struggles in this early birth. And there's uh, great uh, assaults against it. And, and Stephen is raised up as a deacon here to proclaim the word of God. He is highly trained and he knows the gospel well but it's these first few verses that I want you to turn your attention to For chapter 7 verse 1 the high priest said are, are these things so and he began he has already been sharing some history and so 
And he said, here Stephen begins to speak, Hear me, brethren and fathers, the glory, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Manasseh before he lived in Haran. And they said to him, leave, he said to him, leave your country and your relatives and come into this land that I shall show you. Notice the faith that's taken place here in Abraham to follow a God that he, that he did not, was not raised with. Stephen goes on to say, Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him moved to this country in which you are now living. But he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet, even when he had no children, he promised that he would give to him a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke to this effect that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. This is the book of Exodus. We're going to get to that. And whatever nation to which they will be in that bondage, I myself will judge, says God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. Now, certainly, Stephen is preaching from history. My point is this. Jacob is preaching from faith. Isn't that amazing? Here, Stephen, and he goes on, and you can read this. It's a great historical, chapter 6 as well, a historical count of the nation of Israel and the birth of it and, and so forth. But Stephen is pre- preaching from biblical history. He's looking back into the Bible and seeing that. Jacob is believing out of pure faith and preaching to his son, this is what God's going to do. Are you sure, Dad? Because we're in the middle of Egypt, and there's only 70 of us. See, believing in the God of promise. Do you believe in the God of promise? Second thought tonight, God's providence is greater than the will of men. Go back to your text in Genesis 48, verse 8. When Israel, that's Jacob, saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, these, they are my sons whom God has given me here. So he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel so dim from age that he could not see. And then Joseph brought them close to him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face And behold, God has let me see your children as well. Then Joseph took them from his knees and bowed his face to the ground. Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand towards Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand towards Israel's right, and brought them close to him. But Israel stretched out his right hand and and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. <laughs> what, a, what a repeatable turn of events, isn't it? Notice a little phrase there. He says in verse 8, who are these? Um, people may say, well, doesn't he know his own grandchildren? Well, remember, the Bible says that he was blind, basically, here. He could not see. And this isn't only just not being able to see. This is a verification because he's about to make a covenant and promise with these boys. He, he, he's, look, it's hard to trick the tricker. <laughs> I've already seen this pony show, and I did it. And so he's, he wants to know who are these. You name them. Let's go on record who these boys are. Bring them close to me. Joseph 
knows very well that his eyes, Jacob's eyes are not well, and he's making sure the kids are in the right place. But God's leading Jacob here. Joseph doesn't know that yet. And he wants to get this correct, so he's got the kids lined up with the left hand or the right hand. He's got them all lined up. Got to give them in position, because Dad can't see, and I don't want any mistakes here. Manasseh's the firstborn. He came out first. We want him to have the birthright. Nevertheless, Joseph is surprised by the switching of hands. The right hand was the hand of blessing and the hand of promise, right? And Joseph had already placed his right hand into the thigh of Jacob. When Jacob said, swear to me that you will not bury me, swear to me that you will take me to the land where God has promised. So he understood that this, this means, this is it, this right hand is everything. And so now this switcheroo happens here. Father Jacob crosses hands but he has a purpose for this. And notice that jo- Joseph is serious. He, he knows the customs of the ancient times. He knows what this means. He may even have heard of Jacob's trickery with Esau. And surely Joseph feared this could be very wrong. This could cause problems. And, and, and there's no sin on Joseph's part here. He just doesn't understand. He's just saying, well, dad, 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 whoa, hold on. This isn't right. This is not the way it's done. But yet... Jacob knew the will of God, and he was undeterred by Joseph's objections here, as the text says. Now, because God's providence is here, Ephraim goes on to be the greater of two tribes, and that's an interesting thing that happens here. When we study Ephraim out, there are many times in the scriptures that the term Ephraim replaces the term Israel in the scriptures. Often the Bible will talk about Ephraim as the ten tribes of Israel, the northern tribes. He'll use the word Ephraim. In fact, if you were to look at Isaiah chapter 7, there Isaiah is going to King Ahaz and going to uh, help him understand that God is going to take him through this difficult time. This is before Ahaz turns into Ahaz. We know he is. But um, uh, Isaiah comes to him and says, God is going to take you through this. And, of course, this is where the great verses said that you'll have a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. This is all part of that. Over and over in this text, he never calls the ten tribes anything but Ephraim. Ephraim. So God's providence reigns supreme. Ephraim becomes the stronger of the two here. And we see that throughout the scriptures. Third thought. God's thoughts are not our thoughts, nor are our ways his ways. One thing just before I get into that, I I, I skipped just a couple of thoughts. I wanted to say something about verse 11. It, it It caught my attention as I studied this. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your children as well. What a statement of gratitude. I never expected. It could be said this. I may not deserved because of a lack of faith on my end of it, Jacob may be saying. I never expected to see your face and God has let me see your children. Isn't God gracious? I think so often we get caught up in the difficulties of life and we always see the difficulties and we miss the grace. Isn't that horrible of us? We would call that person a negative person, wouldn't we? And, and here it would be a spiritually negative person. We always look at the difficulties. We, we don't look at what God is doing. 
We have an embrace that he, he has taken us through so many things that we have not yet ever seen. How many times has God spared us from something we'll never probably ever know about? And even in this, this has not been an easy life on Jacob either. For 22 years, he lived with the thought of his death of his 17-year-old teenage boy being torn apart by wild animals. For 20 year, 22 years, he lived with that thought. 22 years, his other sons lied to him. This wasn't easy. But Joseph's heart has returned to the Lord in a sense, and, and this is such an expression of the goodness of God here. Verse 12, then Joseph took to his knees, and I, and I don't want to leave Joseph out of this, because though Joseph doesn't quite understand what God's doing at this point, he will accept it. But Joseph bows to the ground, so he's not seeing exactly what Joseph is doing at first. But there's an act here. There's, there's Joseph recognizing that his father has authority here, that God is leading his father, and he submits to his father here. Such wonderful lessons there. Submit to those God has put in your authority, even maybe when you don't understand it. In verse 14, Israel stretches out that hand. Believe me, he is being led by God. Third, now we'll move on. I, I wanted to touch those thoughts here. God's thoughts are not our thoughts, nor his ways our ways. Um, verse 15 through 20. Notice as we read along, he blessed Joseph. Joseph's down in front of him, right? And said, the God before whom my father Abraham and Isaac walked. Notice the theology in that, right? It's always existed. The God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. What a statement. Even when I wanted to die because my son was not alive, he is my God. And he is not only my God, he is my shepherd. He's leading me. There's such important terms there. I circle stuff like that. He's my shepherd. It's just not a general term of a deity. A shepherd leads, cares, protects, provides, all of that. He said he is my shepherd. The angel who has redeemed me from evil, referring probably to the pre-incarnate Christ in many cases here. Bless the lads and may my name live on in them in the names of my father Abraham and Isaac. And may they grow into a, mul a multitude in the middle midst of the earth. And really they were in the midst of the earth. Egypt was the ruling power and they're in the middle of that. But this isn't about, hey, remember, um, let's make famous Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is remembering who these men had their faith in is the idea here. Verse 17, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him. So he knew the customs of the day there, right? And he grasped his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, No, it's not so, my father. For this one is the firstborn. He thinks it's a mistake. Place your right hand on his head. And so Joseph is convinced this is the way it should be. This is the custom of the day. This is, this is what we've planned. Mom and I have planned for Manasseh to be my uh, one who, who receives all my wealth to be the inheritance to really to be who I am. But, verse 19, his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also will become a people, speaking of Manasseh, and he will also be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. And he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh, 
Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. As I read this and studied this, I thought, you know, it can be difficult for us, us who, who have a complete canon. This is the canon of scriptures, the rule. It's done. We don't need to add to it nor take away anything out of it. We have everything we need in it. But it may be difficult for us to understand the power of the patriarchs and what they were going through. They did not have this. God was speaking to them. God was speaking to them. Hebrews chapter 1 says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, this would be Jacob here, in the prophets in many portions in many ways, it is a fascinating thing. And, and this isn't just happening by chance. Jacob's not stumbling his way through this. He's not leaning back on prior experiences to do what he's doing. God is directing him. And though he does not have a full canon like we have, and we are much better off, please understand that. We are not looking for God to speak to us. It's probably what you ate. God's given us everything we need. But it is difficult for us in this culture, in this mind, and with a complete canon to understand that he is not making some whimsical choice here. He is not going, well, should I do what I did? You know, yeah, let's do it. He's not doing that. God's directing this man. On the other side, um, when we think about this, and just again briefly, do not look for God to speak to you. Those who are his hear his voice. This is his voice. It's more complete than Jacob could ever imagine. So trust the word of God. Believe it, obey it, live your life by it. Notice verse 17 and 18 show the reaction of a very godly man to what God was doing. Verse 17 and 18 showed Joseph's reaction. It displeased him, the Bible said. Now, I want to make a point here. There are sometimes things God does that we don't understand, and it's not pleasing to us. (laughs) Many times I've said, God, I don't understand why you did this. I do not understand. And hopefully before your mind goes or your heart goes to sin... You bend your knee and say, I don't need to know, though. Help me obey you. I don't want you to miss that in this point because it's so clear here. Joseph's displeased with this. This is not the way ancient culture works, Dad. (laughs) I don't understand what you're doing. But nowhere in the text, as you follow this out, does Joseph rebel against his father. And like Joseph has done all through this study, he obeys God. And he allows his father to do what his father believes God wants him to do. And he submits wholly to it. And it's a beautiful thing. And this is why I titled this, certainly this title came from Isaiah 55, 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And there's times you and I, like we learned not too many Sundays ago, we said, Lord, help my unbelief. I don't understand what you're doing at this point. I would have I done this totally different. I've had some things happen in our life recently. I said, oh, Lord, I wouldn't have done it this way. Please, Lord, help my unbelief. But God had a plan for the descendants of Ephraim and was much greater than Joseph could understand at the moment. It's interesting just to study him out. Numbers chapter 2, the alignment of the tribes as they travel is fulfilled in that text. You could read that later. Numbers chapter 2, of course, the tabernacle is all in the middle and he starts to assemble the tribes around it right so the tabernacle is protected by these tribes and it starts to go down through the numbers of the tribes there 
And to show you that God kept his word about Ephraim, there wasn't even close. Ephraim that had a man that could have a sword, who was ability to fight. He had 108,100 in that tribe as they assembled. Manasseh, a great nation that it was, a great tribe that it was, only had 32,200. So uh, three times as many Men, when you study the Ephraim and Manasseh out, there's over 40 more times the Bible speaks of Ephraim, particularly as that northern tribes. And so God certainly blesses, blessed the tribe of Ephraim and made them a leader among nations. But God's thoughts are not our ways, is it? God's thoughts and his ways are not always ours, are they? And he does things different. And I think this comes down to the gospel too. And I want to just take a moment to take a run at this. God's gospel is so different than you and I would have wrote it. You say, well, it's pretty good. Yeah, it's really good. And you and I wouldn't have come up with this. And there's reasons why. If it was left to man, we would have come up with a works-proven gospel. That's what we would have done in our fallen nature. We would have made a list. And that's why all the religions of the world are built on list. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Because not only does God do things that sometimes Christians don't understand, his gospel is done in a way that people don't understand. In fact, we'll see here in this text that it's foolish to many people. Verse 18, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's absolutely foolish. What? You don't want anything from me? You want me to believe in a God-man who walked on this earth and they nailed to a cross? You want me to put my faith in him? It's his foolishness. Do you know who I am? Do you know the lines that I come from? Do you know who, who I was? My parents were in church, a church before that, and church before that. Look. See, it's foolishness to the world. To those who are perishing, they have no sight of the gospel. They have no true understanding of what Jesus has done. But, well, here's a great conjunction in this verse, isn't this? Always said Paul had a great but. This is what I mean. (laughs) Better not put that on the tape. That's an incredible conjunction here, right? Those who are perishing, the gospel, the cross is foolishness. But here's a great conjunction. But to us, who are being saved, there was a point we were saved, he keeps us saved and he will save us is the idea here. It's the power of God. (laughs) Let me say this, it's God's plan. So to the world, what we preach is foolish. A dead Jesus? The one who hung on a cross, a Jew? Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God made, made foolish the wisdom of the world? Remember when you're young and you think about this superstar of some sort, whether athletic or, or uh, mind or whatever, and you go, oh, if that person can just get saved, oh, how, how people would be transformed. No, 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 that person can't save anyone. In fact, most of those people reject Jesus. They don't need him. Verse 21, for since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not 
come to know God, the emptiness of the world's wisdom. We shoot rockets into space. We produce medicine. In, in, in five hours, you can be on the other side of this continent at dinner with somebody. It's amazing what has taken place in this world. But when it comes to salvation, their wisdom is empty. This is why it's a God thing. And this is what he does. And, and Joseph didn't understand fully what God was doing, but he believed. Notice this text goes on, for indeed Jews ask for signs. We've got to see evidence. Greeks want wisdom. You may want both. Most people do. You want proof. That'll tell you it's not faith. Salvation comes by faith alone. Does not come by signs and wisdom. And it'll prove if you're still looking for something, you're still looking for that magic bullet, something that God has, you are not in faith. God will grant you faith and you will know it and you will bow your knee willingly to the Savior. And you will see his glorious gospel and it will be wisdom to you, not foolishness. Paul in turn says, but we preach Christ crucified. Mm. That's our message. To the Jew, stumbling block. To the Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are called, <laughs> I love that, hands selected by God, misses none of his. All that are his will come and I will lose none of them, Jesus said. The called know this, both Jew and Greek. The, they've come out of signs and they've come out of wisdom because Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. He's both. He's all of it. He's the word, logos, the power and the wisdom of God. And because the foolishness of God is wiser than men if there were such a thing, right? And the weakness of God is stronger than men if there were such a thing. For consider your calling, brethren, that we were not many wise according to flesh. I hope this doesn't hurt your feelings. Not many mighty, not many noble. What that's saying is we don't put any effort to our own in this text that we are going, hey, I'm here because I was smart. <laughs> your smartness would have landed you in hell if it isn't for God. That's what he's reminding us, right? Verse 27, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Can you imagine what it will look like when every knee will bow? Yours and eyes will fall so willingly to the ground and others will be forced in rejection of who he is. We, we will bow to this that they call foolish, joyfully, because God's chosen the weak things of the world to shame and the things which are strong and the base things of the world and despise God uh, and the despise God has chosen. That's us. The things that are not so that he might nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. You'll never stand before and say, I'm here because I chose you or I was smart enough to figure out the way and the riddle and the puzzle and I'm here. You only boast in him. Verse 30 is a favorite verse of mine, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Love that phrase. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Remember, his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. We would create a religious system of works, and that's what the world has done. 
and they will continue to do that. We boast at his doing who have become to us wisdom from God. Christ has become that to us. He's become the wisdom of God. He's become our righteousness. He's become our sanctification. He's become our redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord, we boast in nothing else. And I think at the end of the day, Joseph said, my boast is not in how the way, the way I thought things should have been done or the way culture does. I boast in a God who took me through 22 years that I didn't know what he was doing and he gave me faith to follow him and I believed and in the end he said, go ahead, Dad. I'll follow you because you're following God. And I think that's what happens in this text. Last thought as we wind up here for God does reward the righteous look at verse 21 and 22 then Israel said to Joseph behold I'm about to die Hmm. but God will be with you (laughs) and bring you back to the land of your fathers What, what bold statement of faith are you kidding me Humanly looking at this, you're 70 people, you're in the middle of a Goshen, and you're a long ways from the land of Canaan, and you're a long ways to being numbered like the sands of the sea. And let, look at the faith that Joseph has, Israel has, as he speaks to Joseph. I'm about to die, but God will be with you, and he will bring you back. I will give you one more, one portion more than your brother's which I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and my bow. Well, a couple of thoughts just to close it out. The return to the promised land is imminent. Notice he says, and, and, and bring you back. Notice that. But God will be with you and bring you back. He knows. He, he, there's an intimate idea of the return of God in this, in this promised land to him. He's, he, he knows this. The return is imminent. He speaks that way. The scriptures speak that way. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, Christ told parables about having your wicks trimmed and your oil and your lamps. Be ready, be ready, be ready. All through the New Testament, the apostles spoke in the imminent turn of return of Christ. We are to be ready for him. He is a God who is a God of promise. And he will return us to the promised land someday. And our promised land is so much better than Canaan. (laughs) Oh, Canaan was a good land. It had deep soil and flowed with milk and honey. What a rich agriculture term that is. But it didn't hold a candle to our heaven. Where there's no tear. There's no sin. Christ shines in his full glory like the the strength of the sun. And you and I will be forever in his bosom, in his care, in his love. And in fact, we just struggle to get our minds around that. But he's coming. And what a reward to us. I want you to think about this. It is a reward to believers to believe that Jesus is coming. If you don't believe Jesus is coming, it's very difficult to live this life. He's given you this understanding that I'm coming back. And Joseph knows, excuse me, Jacob knows that this land was promised and it's coming. And he makes a clear statement. He will bring you there and he will put you in the land. Now, he's a box of bones when he goes, (laughs) but he goes. And I love living that way. 
I, I, I really am bothered at times when I, when I get too earthly, right? We get too much into this life. We, don't, we lose our joy, don't we? And so though we must take care of homes and cars and do the things in business and the things that we do, we have to be careful not to bypass what God has for us. We have a life that's coming in Him. B, we have a crown of righteousness. It's interesting, verse 22, he says, I'll give you one portion more than your brothers. Joseph never sees that portion. Do you know that? This is how much faith he had that they're going back to this land. Now, Joseph's descendants certainly do, and that's probably what this is speaking to, but Joseph doesn't see this. Joseph dies in Egypt, and they carry his bones there. But he gives one more portion than his brothers. I think this is... God's reward of Joseph's righteousness. God recognizes that Joseph did what was right when all others did not. I think this is also heavenly too. I think there's great rewards for those who long for his appearing. 2 Timothy chapter two, excuse me, 4 verse 8 says, In the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. But not only me, and I love this phrase, brothers and sisters, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Remember I told you that the great gift, reward for a believer is that you love his appearing? You're longing for it? Do you long for it? It's a great gift to long for the coming of Christ. For, for by death or by rapture that you go and be with God. It's a great reward. It's great, great security for you. It's assurance. It also gives you motivation in this life to live for him. And there is a crown of righteousness that is given to those who long for him. And I think there's also a negative here. There could be those who don't long for his appearing, thus don't know him. Why would you long for someone you don't follow? You would be a stranger in heaven. You would be unlike all others there. Why would you long for something you don't have here, you don't want here? And so I think just in the context here that God is blessing Joseph. I have an extra portion for you, Joseph. You were faithful when no one else was. And then finally, blessings we are unaware of see there. Nowhere in Scripture is this land recorded, recorded taken from the Aramites. Uh, there's nowhere in Scripture that doesn't show this. Uh, it's an interesting phrase, it's an interesting thing in here. Doubtlessly, Jacob fought a few battles that are not recorded, recorded in the Scriptures, and somehow he attained this land. But God remembers righteousness. And Joseph never caved as the rest of the family did. His faith remained solid in the most difficult times, accused of, of, accused of rape, thrown in prison, forgotten about all the things that gone on, not even to mention what his brothers did to him. But all through it all, when sin was there tempting him, he, he turned to the one who could rescue him. And he becomes a mark for us so often. And Paul tells Timothy, flee from youthful lust. And doubtlessly, that's a, a great phrase that went down through biblical history marked by Joseph's behavior. But here we 
come to, a, to the end of this chapter, let me just remind you one verse to kind of tie all this together, this blessings we are unaware of. Hebrews chapter six, I quoted this earlier when I started. Hebrews chapter 11, verse six. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. Hmm. Wait a minute. I did this and I did that and, and you know who I am, don't you? The Bible says without faith, it is, think of this term, impossible. <laughs> it means there's no other way to please God if we don't act by faith. He's not pleased with anything else. So when you drop your money in the offering, drop it by faith. <laughs> not asking God to bless your business and give you back tenfold or whatever you may be in prayer, Jabez. We probably got hit by a chariot the next day. By faith, God, I give you this because you're worthy of it. By faith, I give you my marriage. I will honor my wife. I will honor my vows. I will, I will be a child who obeys my parents and, and honors them. I will, I will be a, a church member, a brother, a sister to people, and I won't complain and gossip. By faith, I'll live for you. Because it's impossible to please you outside of faith, God. And then the verse says this, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those. In some versions, drop this word, who diligently seek him because there's an intensity to that verb. Intense, intensely go after Christ. In closing, it's a battle to fight our flesh and worldly thinking every day, isn't it? It's always crowding in on us. There's always a bill to be paid. There's always a child to be dealt with. There's always something going on. Our bodies are failing. We're struggling with that. But God has given us his son and he's given us his spirit to indwell us to help us diligently seek him. That's what the spirit wants. He's the spotlighter of Jesus Christ. He's the spotlighter of the word of God. That's what he does. Don't quench him because you'll act out of faith when we do those things. His thoughts and his ways can be our thoughts in our ways. They can. And believers do that each and every day when they submit to them. Father, thank you for this great reminder of these patriarchs, Lord, that we've studied. We've learned things that they did poorly and lack of faith, and we've learned things that they did by faith. You are you are a God who is pleased by faith that you give us and faith that we live in. I pray that you would help us, Lord, to live by faith. There are so many things, each and every one of us, we could go around this room that we could say we're struggling. My faith is weak. Lord, help my unbelief. I'm sure most any, every believer in here could say that, Lord. I can't see the future. I don't know what's going to happen in this situation. But let us be like Joseph on his knees before Jacob there as Jacob's doing something that he did not see coming. And let us trust God. Let us trust God when we can't see. Lord, you tell us you're a rewarder of those who diligently seek you because we have to seek you through faith. So Lord, trust us to be a group of people here at Riverbend who live by faith. Individually, corporately, leadership, all the way through, Lord. And you'll be pleased with that. You'll be worshiped with that. And we'll have joy. So thank you for the reminders of this, Lord. We praise you and worship you for all who you are, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.